Leading people is one of the most challenging things you can do. Simply put, people are a trip. Here's how to make sure they don't trip you up on your journey. Josh Bain here, your host for a very special episode of Starting a Fire. Today, we get the absolute pleasure of hearing from a friend of this podcast, Pastor Ryan Hughley. CB and Ryan sat down for a one-on-one interview this last week to bring you our episode on people and their effect on any cause you endeavor into. If you're ever going to step out and do something great, you'll need to not only be good at the task at hand, but also have some skills leading people. And look, people can be fickle, unreliable, self-serving, and sometimes downright unpleasant. Learning to deal with the perils of leadership is not something you can master quickly. In fact, it's more aptly developed on the job. And there's really no way to know if you've got it all mastered. So today on the show on Starting a Fire, I get to sit down with my friend, author, pastor, and church planter, Ryan Hughley, to discuss what leadership is like in both big and small settings. In fact, we'll also even deep dive into just what it takes to bounce back after the people you lead knock you down. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and what you're currently doing right now? Yeah, absolutely, man. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be on and excited about your podcast. Uh, Yeah, I currently um, lead a new church called Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah, Um, from Corvallis, Oregon, originally. Uh, Dad was in the military, moved all over the place because of that, went to college in Chicago, met my wife there had some kids, started planting churches and pastoring and preaching and doing all of that. But uh, yeah, through a long uh, series of experiences, we've ended up here in Salt Lake City. And uh, we just launched last September and we're off to a great start. And tell me about that. I mean, you're you're planting a Christian church in a predominantly LDS neighborhood. I mean, what made you want to do that? That sounds crazy. Yeah, you know, I think we were, I'm sure we'll get into this, but you know, after a couple hard years of ministry that didn't go the way that we hoped and planned, um, we were in a situation where my options were plant another church or be unemployed. And so uh, chose church plant. Uh, and we were looking for two things. We we're looking for a place we really wanted to live for the long haul. You know, we didn't, we're tired of moving. And we were looking for a place that we thought it was strategic to plant churches. Um, For those that don't know, uh, Salt Lake City is the least churched city in America. It doesn't show up on studies like that because the studies that are done tend to include uh, the LDS church, the Mormon church. Uh, But when you pull that segment out, less than 2% of our population will attend a Bible-believing church on Sunday. Um, We are the fifth fastest growing city in America. We have 2 million people currently uh, projected to jump to 4 million in the next 20 years. So we love the mountains. We love being outside um, and going on adventures as a family. And uh, I don't think there's a place that's more strategic to plant churches than fifth fastest growing city in America with less than 2% Bible-believing Christians. So those were the two giant factors. Uh, We really liked it here and we saw tremendous need and opportunity to plant more churches. Yeah, I think what it's cool about your story is uh, you kind of come at it from both angles. One is you are strategically selecting a place to plant a church that needs a church. Right. Two is like, hey, we like the mountains too. Like there's a certain portion of what we're going to do that we want to make sure our quality of life is good as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I I think it's a, if you're going to start a church, as you know, and as we'll talk about, it's pretty tough endeavor. And if you don't like the place that you are, like just practically speaking, Uh, then I just don't think that's going to go great for you. There's enough pressures 
in the job itself to not have one of those pressures be, we don't really like living here. So I think that's a pretty important factor that I try to coach people toward. Yeah, I like that. So you, you mentioned um, this is not your first rodeo, right? right. You've, you've planted churches and led churches before. Can you talk to us a little bit about your history and, and why yeah. you're here now and, and maybe why you have the mindset that you have? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we planted uh, our first church in Chicago in 2009, Redemption Bible Church with the Acts 29 Network. Uh, pastored there. It was an amazing experience. We pastored there for seven years uh, before uh, transferring leadership to another one uh, of our guys who was a, a lay elder from the very beginning. The church started in his house, but uh, he worked for Microsoft at the time. Uh, wasn't even a Christian, actually, right before he came to faith as we were starting the church and was very generous and let us meet in his living room, even though he was still figuring a lot of things out. But he journeyed with us for seven years, grew extensively, was a part of my preaching labs all the way through. So we uh, coached him, taught him how to preach, and uh, he served real faithfully. And it was amazing to watch God raise him up as the next leader in that church. And so we transferred leadership to him. He's now the lead pastor there doing an amazing job. Uh, the church continues to be very fruitful. Our family uh, ended up in uh, Hickory, North Carolina, which is in a small town about an hour north of Charlotte. So went from uh, a church that I had started and planted, pastored for seven years, church that was at the time was about 250 people, and then took a large existing church in a small town in the south which felt like living in a, on a different planet, quite honestly. Going from big city in the north to small town in the south was just very, very different. Uh, and the learning curve was steep, to say the least. Um, but we met some amazing people through that. But it was a larger existing church, church with about 40 years of history, church that was 600 uh, when we arrived and jumped to about 1,000 inside of three months, uh, which I've never experienced before or since. But it was, a, it was a, an amazing thing to go from a church of 250 with three of us total on staff to including interns. When I got to Hickory, there's 29 people on staff, and which was crazy. And we ended up shaving some of that down uh, just to be better stewards of both people's time, energies, resources, and finance as well. Uh, but yeah, dude, it was just a different world, you know, to go from, from this kind of small thing that I had started to this large thing. And it was a, it was challenging to say the least fruitful in a lot of ways, but to date, one of the hardest things I've ever done. So let me ask you, I mean, because you are talking to perhaps an innate desire for anybody who's listening today. And remember, Ryan, our, our podcast is really, you know, it's about anybody looking to start a fire, anybody yep. looking to do something great. So pastors, leaders, entrepreneurs, young professionals, anybody who's like, I'm going to go after this big dream of mine. And yeah. I'm hearing you talk about the transition from something small to something huge. And really innately, we all want to jump like that. Right. And, and yet I don't hear the sort of, fairy tale that we all tell ourselves in our head, which is like, yeah, I have arrived and right. now everybody recognizes me for me and it's shining time, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like that for you, right? No, you know, no, we, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's interesting. I had, if you were to look back at my, my prayer journals for probably five years leading up to that move, I had some very specific things that I'd been praying for that God would give to us and he just didn't. And I would continue to pray and pray and pray and I just didn't see them happening. And when I look back, God said yes to about five really significant prayers with this move into North Carolina. And uh, interestingly enough, you know, I think that sometimes 
you know, when God says no to our prayers, it's in our best interest that he does that. Not sometimes, all the time. If he says no, it means it's not best for us. But yeah, so God said, yes, we, we had been living in a um, about 1,100 square feet, two bedroom, one bath house in Chicago with three kids. So it was tight. So we've been praying for a house that we'd be able to, you know, entertain in, have people in, you know, pr- uh, practice hospitality in. Just couldn't find that in Chicago. Couldn't get our house to sell. When this North Carolina thing opened up, our house sold in three days. And we got a 2,600 square foot, two-year-old, five-bedroom, two-and-a-half bath house for like, you know, pennies. Because right. uh, it's just everything was so much cheaper there than Chicago. So God said yes to that. We've been praying for a really good school option. God opened a door for us to put our kids in one of the best private schools that they will probably ever experience. It was an amazing school and our kids really thrived there. And I'd been praying for a larger impact in ministry, more numbers. And so God puts us, you know, we were the building that uh, this church had was 90,000 square feet. It was a hotel that had been rehabbed, 900 seat, brand new auditorium built on the front of it. And I remember the first time I walked in and stood on the stage, I was like, yes, God, this is it. <laughs> and, uh, and I was, and I am, I'm so, so thankful for the experience, but more than anything, I remember when that came to an end and I resigned and we can get into some of the details of that if you want, but I remember standing in the kitchen of this amazing house, uh, and we're getting ready to pull our kids out of the school that we love. And I've just resigned from this ministry that size wise was everything that I had longed for, for so long. We were standing in our kitchen and Tammy, my wife looked at me and she said, I think God brought us here to kill a thousand little gods in our hearts. Yeah. And that was a hundred percent true. And what God did is, is reveal an immense amount of idolatry inside of me that I had taken all of these things that are good things, man. A good home for your family is good. A school for your kids is good a fruitful ministry is good. But when we make good things, God things, when we deify them and make them the center of our lives and raise them up as ultimate, it becomes an idol in our heart. And God loves us enough that he's not going to let us live like that. But I do believe that sometimes God will give us over to that to reveal to us what horrible taskmasters our idols actually are. Mm. And so God tore all that down for us. And, you know, in one day I went from a pastor with a staff with a great building, you know, all of this stuff to I'm hanging out in Starbucks, hoping to meet like some rando that might, you know, be a part of my church. It was just a very, very, but I was so thankful to be back in that position because I I can genuinely say I am more content, satisfied and joy filled than I've ever been, even though I don't have all of these things that I longed for for so long. Yeah, that's good. And, and I think, um, I'm hearing a through line in in your story of um, your experience with people and what you're learning about yourself in the process. And so yeah. I wonder if we can, let's, I want to deep dive into sort of your role as the leader, your sure. role as the leader in these various incarnations of the things that you've led. And I wonder before we get into any of the nitty gritty, I mean, Ryan, we live in a, in a leadership culture. There's, there's a gazillion books mm-hmm. and and thankfully, we have not positioned ourselves as a leadership podcast, but there are myriad opportunities for people to learn the nine, seven, ten, right. one step to become the best leader. But if I, could, if I could pin you down and ask you, like, in your various incarnations of the things that you led, what could you say are the one or two things that, you know, sort of universal leadership principles that you either learned 
or that you sort of adhere to now that you find to be healthy ways to lead people? Yeah, I would say two things that are front of mind for me. One is, I think that a lot of the time we forget that more than anything else, leadership is relationship. Um, and that when you're not like, well, I have this phrase that I've said for a lot of years that, that leadership without relationship is dictatorship. And I believe it's very important to remember that, it, that at the end of the day, the vast majority of good leadership and good leadership decisions is like, what's the best relational thing to do here? And, you know, whether you are planting a church and, uh, you know, when you plant a church, it's like starting a business. It would be the same thing when you, more than anything, you're trying to, people are buying into you more than they buy into any vision. Like your vision is important. Your language, all of that stuff is so, so, so important. But ultimately, I get even more this second go round than I did the first time. People are just trying to, to sit with you and figure out like, do I believe this guy? Do I buy into this person? Do I think they're trustworthy? Do I think they're a person of character? And that doesn't really end. So I think that, you know, we had nine people that moved to Salt Lake City with us uh, in total. And I get asked all the time, like, why, why, how in the world did you convince people, you know, yeah. to be willing to do that? And, um, I don't think it's because I'm, you know, like shiny and special. I think ultimately it was people that we had really deep relationship with and that in that appreciated a style of ministry that was very relational. So I think that's the big, one big thing I would really emphasize is just don't ever mistake the importance of relationship. The second thing would be that I think that as, especially if you're a senior leader or the senior leader, you're an entrepreneur or you are an artist or you are a church planner or lead pastor or whatever, you are maybe more than anything else, the chief keeper of the culture. And I think about that every single day when it comes to Ridgeline, the church that I pastor, but it's true of my family as well that I'm the chief culture creator. And so I'm very careful about the language that we use, uh, the way things look, the, and not, not because we're trying to be fancy. We're, I mean, we are like painfully not fancy at Ridgeline. Like we're trying to really be sincere and authentic in a culture that has had religion to the max that looks very pretty on the outside, but inside is empty. So we're trying to kind of flip all that and just be very sincere and normal. But even that is really intentional. Like in our worship services, we try not to be fancy. We try to be very, very simple. And the reason for that is that we're, we're trying to distinguish ourselves. We are creating culture, but nobody else is going to do that for you. If somebody else is trying to create a, 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 you can't assign somebody else to be like, hey, you go create the culture because if there's a contradiction between what that person's doing and what you're doing, if you are the senior leader, by definition, the culture is going to follow you. And so I think being, you know, it's going to be created one way or the, one way or the other. The question is, are you going to be intentional about it? And so yeah. those, are the, those are the two things, the importance of relationship and then being the chief keeper of the culture. Can I challenge you here? I mean, those things are hard. Like that doesn't, yeah. I wish you would have told me uh, it was like the three-step plan, right? Yeah. At the end of the day, especially for folks who maybe are gifted, but are not, um, not incredibly or innately extroverted. Sure. Just the very concept that my ability to lead people may live or die by my ability to invest in them interpersonally and authentically. Yeah. I mean, that, 
that sounds like a big challenge. And then add on top of that, not only am I supposed to be connected to them, but I'm also supposed to sort of lead the uh, inertia of the movement itself in the mm-hmm. way that I carry myself. I mean, I would even say like, gosh, I don't know. Those, that's too much. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you here, like if I'm a young person and I'm looking to lead, I want to start a business, I want to um, you know, start a nonprofit or any one of these things. And I'm not, I'm not like that. I mean, how do, mm-hmm. I, how do I frame my mind to think through being that sort of it's almost like charismatic leader, but charismatic and authentic, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I would, I would want to correct a little bit. I, I'm not talking about being, I think that I totally understand the, the misconception there. I am introverted, um, not extroverted. And by that, I mean, the difference is I think sometimes we don't think clearly about those terms. I think sometimes when we say introverted, we mean shy. And when we say extroverted, we mean like super outgoing and crazy. And I I think more than anything, when I think about introversion versus extroversion, I think, do people, does time with people really fill my tank or does it deplete it? And so I'm an introvert. So I find that when I have a day with a lot of meetings, I go home very depleted. Like my heart is full. My soul might be full from what God did, but I physically and relationally feel very depleted. So I am an introvert. And I am, I do believe, uh, highly effective at building relationship with people. So don't think that just because you're an introvert, you can't be effective at mm. relationship. That's good. Um, because every, I mean, even introverts have friends, you know, and ultimately is like, if you can have a friend, then you can be good at building relationship. And I would say if it's not, if you are very shy, then that is a hurdle to overcome for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, we have this long list of both history outside the church, even biblical history that we see throughout the scriptures, God uses all kinds of people. So the idea that you have to be this hyper extroverted, outgoing, super charismatic, like that sounds like a slow death to me. That is not who I am. (laughs) And that's not who I want to be. Right. Um, So I think everybody has shortcomings that you might need to, to shore up and to grow in a little bit, but don't think that just because you're wired a particular way, God can't use you. That's not true. Like, read the Bible. That's not true. Use all kinds of jacked up, messed up, broken, hurting people. And truthfully, dude, we came in, our whole team came into planting Ridgeline with an, with a, just a deep limp, a rate, uh, relationally, like Tammy and I were exhausted from years of trying to build and form new relationship that was not natural for us. And so then we came, I even remember talking to Tammy in our tiny little apartment when we moved here. And she's like, I don't, I don't know how we're supposed to do this. Like we're, we're starting a church, which means we have to be building a bunch of new relationships. And I don't think I can do that right now. Hmm. And so we just had to trust. And I just heard God say to me over and over and over again, like you do what you can do and I'm going to take care of the rest. That's and good. so I think that regardless of who you are, regardless of how you're wired, grow in self-awareness, know who you are, play to your strengths, and then trust God to all of these other areas in your life. That's good. And, and, and I love that you're talking to the fact that it's okay to have some weaknesses or con- some constraints. Um, sometimes that's what makes us unique in the way that totally. we Totally. I'm good at like two things, literally. Right. Only good at two things. I suck at every other thing. And uh, so I think I heard Andy Stanley one time talk about the myth of the well-rounded leader. Like mm-hmm. that's not a thing. The most effective leaders are usually very, very good at one to three things. And then they build great teams around them that complement their weaknesses. So I'm a very, very big believer in that. I do like one or two things well, and then everything else, we got to build a team. 
Now, what a relief for those of us listening to you right now who have only been able to make a very short list of our strengths and a very long list of our weaknesses, right? Totally. Yeah. Well, you mentioned something and I want to, I want to get right to it. You talked about being depleted mm -hmm. um, as being the leader, needing to know yourself, but step outside yourself to engage relationally and culturally to lead people and build something. And end of the day, some days you come home. So I wonder if you can really talk to us like beyond just that depletion, what, what is the toll of leadership? What have you seen in your own life and your relationships, just in terms of your heart, your mind? Like, I think we see the glitz and glamor of leadership mm -hmm. and never really get to see just what it's like behind closed doors. And I wonder if you can talk to that for us. Yeah, man, what is hard about it? What's not? I mean, I think <clears throat> one of the things is just that it is, it's never ending, you know? Like there is a part of me the longer that I'm in ministry, the more I envy people who have a job that has like a clear start and a finish. Like even if you're a builder, like you think about the satisfaction of you started with a foundation and then you framed it out and then I don't really know how to build anything, but you know, then it's done. Somebody lives there, that project is done for you. And I feel like, I think this is probably true both of, of being a pastor and if you are trying to start a business or you're an entrepreneur, if you're building, like our, the kind of building we do never ends. And so I remember being a year into being a pastor like, and, and wiped from just a Sunday of ministry thinking, oh my gosh, I have to do this next week and every week for the rest of my life. Right. So I, I think, don't think about it like that. <laughs> that's, that's not helpful for me. I want to have real clear goals that I'm working toward, but, but trying to think about the entirety of what God has called me to is very, very overwhelming. So I think that's a big thing for me is just, it just never ends. There's always another project. There's always another relationship to mend. There's always a conflict to work through. Like it just is incessant in that it is constantly hard and overwhelming. I think that's the, the, the hardest thing is that, is that it just, it just never ends. It's constant work. Mm -hmm. And is that, is that true of, uh, of anything that you lead, no matter how big or small? hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I think the only thing that's different when the thing you're leading is small versus big is that the work is different. Like what I, my priorities now are the same, uh, at 80 as they were at 800, but it, but the form that it takes is just different. Like, so right now, every new person who comes to Ridgeline and is interested, then I'm going to hook up with them and grab coffee and share the vision, get to know them. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't doing that, you know, in a larger church, but I was meeting with our staff. I mean, I literally averaged nine meetings a day. It was just different, the people that I was meeting with, but it was still relationships. Yeah. And I think for me, when I think about at least this won't maybe apply the same way to people who are in the marketplace, but people preaching and vision, those are my three big buckets that I'm responsible for as the lead pastor of this church and any church I've ever led. The people piece, like who the people are might be different based on the size, but the priorities remain the same. So I think it's just, it's just uh, the form that your priorities take will be different based on the size. But my guess is, regardless of your industry, your priorities will largely stay the same. Okay. What, what is it like? Um, what was it like for you to be the head of a large organization? Um, was, it, was it as shiny as uh, we might anticipate? I mean, was it as, as golden and beautiful and, 
and exalted as one might anticipate? Or, or were there things that you didn't see coming in that leadership position or that elevation? Yeah, I think, <clears throat> you know, I used to, over the course of the first summer, I met with our summer interns every Friday for lunch and just did Q&A with them. And, and uh, this uh, one young guy asked me, he's like, you know, how do you not just come in, you know, you got, we've got this big church and people are going to come on Sunday and we got a good staff and everything. How do you not just come in and feel like you've arrived? Hmm. And uh, I almost honestly, like I was really taken back because I didn't even have a category for that question. I was like, well, I, I guess maybe everybody else comes in and they see all of that. I just walk in and the only thing that's ever on my mind is everything that is not as it should be or could be. So, um, you know, that, that was very humbling. I don't think that I ever got to a point where I felt high on the size of what we were doing. I think God was very faithful and kind to me to kind of keep me under the weight of, of the whole thing. So did it feel good to like step up onto a big stage with a room full of people and have a green room in the back? Like, yeah, that was cool. Like we don't even have any rooms in our new, right. you know, thing now. So there was, there were aspects of it that were great that I, that I really did love. And I met some incredible people. God grew me in massive, massive ways, but in general, it was not at all what I thought it was going to be. And I think a big part contextually for us was that I was stepping into something that already existed, which is very different than leading something you've created. When you walk into an environment like that, where culture is created already, uh -huh. um, is there a tendency to be or to feel under attack? Yes. I, I think it probably has a lot to do with what your approach is going to be. I, I came in hired under um, a banner that was, there were some significant philosophy of ministry and cultural things that I was responsible for leading in a new direction. Got it. So when you come in, like it doesn't, and, it, and, and I, I, would, I would say, I don't think, I, I would never take something existing again um, unless I had a, a le like legitimate burning bush from God. Cause I do not, I believe that some people are much better wired for that. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm not, so I think you're going to feel like if you're, you're, when you come in and you start, start to change a culture, you are, no matter how loving you are, you're declaring war on the old one. Like you're going in a new direction. There is something in the decision to change that says, Hey, what was, even if it was good, it's not going to get us you know, to where we need to go. So we're going to change it. And some people are going to feel as though that is an attack on them. That's an attack on the old culture. And so <laughs> more often than not, somebody attacks you, like you're going to defend yourself and it's going to come back. And so it is going to feel and did at times feel like conflict, which was not fun. Yeah. So, um, all right. So you walk through that season and you get to a place where you, you do have a burning bush over building something afresh mm -hmm. from the ground up. And I wonder um, for somebody who's in that place right now, I mean, that's really kind of what we're talking about. I've gone out into the forest and I'm going to start this fire and it's going to be my thing and it's going to be fresh. Yeah. How do those people prepare their, their hearts and minds for just what you talked about, you and Tammy in your apartment, mm -hmm. in a new city, we're supposed to lead people and yet there are no people, right? Yeah. I mean, how do we prepare for the very beginning stages of leadership, which is sometimes just begging warm bodies to get behind us for a few minutes? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I, think, I think that far too many leaders neglect self-care mm. and we, we tend to interpret self-care as inherently selfish, 
when the truth is like, I think about it all the time, but every time you get on an airplane and they tell you like, if we lose oxygen, the mask's going to fall, but make sure you put your mask on yourself before your kid. And the reason they tell you that is if you start messing around with your kid and you pass out from lack of oxygen, you're worthless to them. Right. And in the exact same way, if leaders don't take care of themselves, even if you have five, 10 years of fruit, but you've done no self care and then you fry out, then you're useless for the back 20 or 30 years of whatever it is that you're building. And so I think that you really have to, you have to, I think that there is a severe lack of self-awareness in our culture. Like we just don't really know how to learn to be self-aware. People tend to not be naturally self-aware. So really knowing what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, what they're wired for. I think that before you set out into a new venture, you should have sought some amount of counsel, uh, feedback, assessment around, are you, are you called out for this? I mean, the failure rate in church planning is like 70%. Mm -hmm. churches fail inside of two years. Right. And, um, and I get that our enemy is not flesh and blood and that we have a real enemy that's seeking to destroy us, but I don't think it's all the devil. I think sometimes we're doing things that we're not qualified, called, or competent to do. Yeah. And, uh, I think that we have to be very careful about not, um, idolizing leadership, uh, and particularly entrepreneurship and starting something because it sounds very sexy to like charge the hill and be the senior leader. And so we've diminished the importance of the number two, the number three. Um, when the truth is like you don't take, and it's no one person that takes any one hill. It takes more than one person to build a company. It takes more than one person to build a church. And so we, we need to be careful not to say like, you're only really achieving God's best for you. If you're a lead pastor or you're a church planter or you're starting your own business, that's not good advice. It's not good theology. And so I think just making sure that you are called, uh, equipped, qualified as much as possible, and then, you know, take care of yourself along the way, stay close to Jesus. Cause he's going to do a super good job of working out the kinks. Yeah, that's good. And you, you, you mentioned this uh, phrase, charge of the hill. And I think yeah. we, we all, especially when we're in a season where we're about to do something new, even if it's something as simple as, uh, and it's not simple, but something maybe as more micro as like losing weight. I'm going to change my totally. eating or my exercise or whatever it may be. The way that we motivate ourselves is with those phrases, those sort yeah. of results based. These are the things that I will accomplish, pop, 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 yep. right? But whenever we accomplish anything, if you look back on the history of any organism, whether it be a business or, or a personal journey of, of, of fitness or starting a church, the stories that we tell of success are rarely those results-based stories. Mm -hmm. There was like those people-based stories. Yep. Right? I mean, we're fascinated with business professionals, right? Steve Jobs, um, Vaynerchuk, um, any number of these other folks, Elon Musk, right? I mean, we're, people are fascinated with the people and no one is really all that fascinated in popular culture by the results or the dividends produced by those businesses, right? Right, right. And so I think one of the interesting things is, especially even in, even in church planning adventure, it's like, we're going to take the hill, we're going to build this church, it's going to do X, Y, and Z. And then if you talk to a church planter or a pastor three or four years down the road, uh, tell us about some of your successes and they immediately go to people. Totally. And I, I wonder if, um, if you would be willing to share a few of those people stories too, because as an introvert myself, I always wonder or worry whether or not I'm going to be good at those long-term people relationships. Yeah. Um, but I'm hearing that that's part of your story too. Totally. Yeah. I'll tell you about <clears throat> the first one here in Salt Lake and then the most recent. Um, the first one is I've always felt like, um, 
for lack of better expression, a crap evangelist. Like I'm just not, I'm not, I had a friend that I felt like every time we went to McDonald's, he led somebody to Christ. And that was just not my, like to get filled with the Holy spirit was a whole like revival broke out. And I just never, that's never really been my story. But uh, when we moved here, you know, we didn't know anybody. Literally, it was just our family. We didn't know anybody. So on Tuesday mornings, I started taking my kids uh, to the one at a time to the pancake house, uh, just down from our neighborhood. And uh, the first week, this girl walked up, she was all tatted up, uh, which is less common in Salt Lake City, and uh, blonde hair, real sweet. And uh, she served us and we had a good conversation about tattoos. And then we just started going back and this girl's name was Bree and she would wait on us every single week. And, uh, so we just developed, I mean, I think it was probably four or five months into going there and building friendship with her before she finally asked, like, what do you do? Why do you live here? And we'd said, we'd come to start a new church and she had just happened to meet a Christian. She grew up LDS, but she just met a Christian, you know, not too long before. So God had been working in that. So anyways, I'll to skip to the end of this, well, the beginning, I guess, of her story was they came to our very first core group gathering on Easter Sunday of last year. Mm-hmm. She gave her life to Christ. And this year, she's a part of my teaching lab cohort, and uh, she serves every single week in media. Her husband now is one of our worship leaders and plays guitar and bass and drums or whatever else we need him to. His name's Stephen, and they're just two of the most pivotal people in our church. And so that that really is like a perfect uh, testimony to the take back of what you gave us about relationship and culture, yeah. right? I mean, like yeah. this was a five month journey of just yep. eating pancakes. And right. building relationship. And yep. at no point during those five months, you're like, hey, you really should join this church and help us build this. No. And places you can I didn't even tell her what I did. I, right. I mean, I never, and I'm, that might have been a fail on my part, but um, <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I never really like just injecting that constantly. Right. Um, so yeah, so that was Brie. And then this last Sunday, um, I was, uh, I'm preaching through the Sermon on the Mount right now. And I was preaching on, you know, storing up treasures in heaven versus treasures on earth. And so basically it was a, a, a money sermon. Mm-hmm. which um, I never fun. Am, never fun. No, no, never fun. Um, people just feel awkward and uncomfortable the whole time, no matter how you do it. And uh, so, you know, you kind of go into that knowing like, yeah, pastor church, some sermons are more utility than anything else. People need to be instructed in the full counsel of God's word. And so this is something we, you know, Jesus talks about money 25% of the time that his lips are moving in the gospel. So it's clearly important. But, you know, I don't go into those thinking like everybody's getting saved today. Yeah, right. And, uh, but preach this message. It went good, not great. It was a B. I got on base. Wasn't my best. Wasn't my worst. But afterwards, this older gentleman came up. His name was Alan. He had taken the train from where he lives in, in our West Valley. And he thought that the train was right by our building. Well, it's not. It's like a, over a mile. So he walked then from the train station. And he listened to this whole thing. He comes up to me afterwards and he's visibly, he's shaking. And he's like, I feel so uncomfortable right now, but I feel like I have to talk to you about this. And he told me that he grew up as well in the LDS church, rebelled in a major way coming out of high school and uh, started to study and did a deep dive into the occult, uh, became a practicing Satanist, hmm. um, started to figure out everything weird and broken in that. And so then kind of checked out the Catholic church. And so finds himself in our room on Sunday and he's just like, I just, I, I know I have to follow Jesus. What do I do? I mean, that's wow. literally how the conversation went. Wow. So we prayed together. I've been texting with Alan today. We're going to go grab coffee uh, next week and just start to talk about, you know, where he's at. But yeah, man, I mean, those are the things that are, I just look back and go a year and a half ago, we had just moved here didn't know anybody. 
And now we have an amazing church. Yeah. And that's yeah. like, I, that's, it's mind blowing to me. Yeah. And I mean, if we can use the metaphor even further, right? Like we plan to start a fire and it's less about how big the flame is. But what I'm hearing in you is like, it's about the people around the flame. Totally. Like it's, it's like who we're sitting next to and who we're, yep. you know, burning s'mores with. Right. Yeah. I think I'm, I, I'm and it's cause I, I think that the things we're most passionate tend to come out of our own journey. And so I think my, my thing right now that I am just the most hung up on is helping. I would love to have, and I don't know that you can truthfully. I think that maybe sometimes God just has to use pain in our lives to teach right. us this lesson, but it, it doesn't like health trumps size every day of the week. So right. what matters is that whatever you're leading is, is healthy. It doesn't matter the size. Like if it's, if it's unhealthy at five, um, it's, it's not going to be any better if it's unhealthy at a hundred, just cause it's bigger. Like what yeah. matters is health. And if you set your, as a leader, you have some level of control over the health. You don't have control over the size. I mean, I think especially if you're, if you are, uh, leading a church in some capacity, uh, you know, even Paul said that Apollos water, he planted Apollos water, but God gives the growth. Like the myth is that pastors grow churches. Pastors don't grow churches. God right. grows churches. Right what pastors do is they feed and they care for and shepherd in the local church. And so if you set your joy on, like, I love the grind of, of just being a pastor, being in people's lives, preaching week in, week out, doing the things that I need to do, then you can actually control, if you will, the joy that you feel. If your joy is set on size, first of all, you don't have control over it. Second of all, if God gives that to you, you're going to realize pretty quickly it wasn't all it's cracked up to be. That's good. That's good. Uh, I was going to ask you, ask you one last question uh, and you kind of just did it. But at the end of the day, man, I am going to start a church. Yep. This will be the first one that I start and you're, yep. you're three deep ahead of me. So, um, you know, what do I need to know? Like, what are some palatable things that I, I need to put in my back pocket that you've seen guys like me certainly fumble through on the first time? Yeah. I mean, I, w I would say if you can with God's help, love every day that you have. So whatever you're like, I don't know what's on your calendar for tomorrow. It might be, you know, meetings with some random people that have heard about your church. It might be, you're just kind of sketching the bones of some vision stuff, whatever it is. If you can find joy in that and love whatever it is that you have before you the rest of today and the rest of tomorrow, and then trust that God's going to get you wherever it is that he wants you to be, because yeah. that's a the big mistake that I made the first round in church planting was I was just so fixated on the next phase. So got we it. started with 15 people and I was thinking, all right, we got to get to 50 in our core group so we can launch. And then we got that. And then I was like, all right, we need to break a hundred and then 200. And there was always this next thing that I was running after. And as a result, I just didn't enjoy this special healthy thing that God allowed me to be a part of. And so coming back into this now, the second time I've just determined I'm not going to make that mistake. And so even when we had nothing, I was trying to think, just be really centered and focused and present on Lord, I'm going to be faithful with whatever you've given me to do today. And I'm going to trust you to get me where you need me to be tomorrow. Uh, but I'm not going to fixate with my eyes down the field every single day for the rest of my life. That's good, man. Uh, I really appreciate you spending time with us today. It's, it's my uh, pleasure. It's been, it's been a fun journey to do this church planting thing and see how much of it is ex extrapolated or makes sense to the broader 
the broader space. But I was glad to get you in today to kind of talk through what you've been through, what you've seen. Um, we could probably do this for another hour and a half, that's for sure. But um, here's the deal. You're listening today. Uh, my guest was Ryan Hughley. He is far better at all these things than I am. He's a pastor and an author. And if you want to learn more about him, you can go to ryanhughley.com. That's R-Y-A-N-H-U-G-U-L-E-Y.com. And that is starting a fire. <laughs> 